Criminal Magic, Chapter 22. Tuesday, 8.37, GMT plus 8. All the faults in the world, all the cobwebs fall from your eyes, and all you can really see is the deepest silence. The silence that is everywhere, and is in fact all that has ever truly existed. Kieran opens his eyes. Light diffusers hidden in recesses around the meditation room layer the walls with nuanced shades of blue. He feels no compulsion to move. The burdens of his position are not always to his likings, but he would be the first to admit to the prerequisites as well. He would spend entire days in the amniotic shelter of meditation and hear nothing about how he had squandered his time. Rewards of status, he chuckles. At least he muses, I haven't forgotten how to laugh at myself. Kieran is well aware just how slight his hold on his position is. For two days now, his working life has been centered on trying to remedy the exigencies of impermanence he is presently amused by. Coordinator has issued what constitutes a call to action, and he has followed her direction. He winces at the passage of a sharp waking pain from a muscle in his thigh as he begins unlimbering his legs from the crowded pretzel of the lotus position. Coincidence? But sometimes planning gives a practical boost to the accidental process. She could not possibly know, he thinks as he begins to wiggle his fingers, how prescient her demands are. In the hours since their talk, he has spent all his time organizing, preparing, dispatching, activating a plan hatched bit by bit in secret over the previous three years. All the actions he is triggering have been carefully considered at the highest levels. Coordinator, for all her connections, was never informed. Not that Kieran didn't trust her, but sometimes additional information can prove fatal, like too much flesh on the body. House Intel has been suspicious for some time that the Indu groups have been working to shift their focus away from the client status dependency on collective. Additionally, it would have been clumsy to let her know that House itself had some whiff of the existence of a backyard plot being hatched by the operation sewn together out of customized pieces by the renegade scientist, Kohler. Kieran was almost forced to sacrifice several excellent agents, including Coordinator, in the attempt to get Kohler to reveal more of his hand. Only her personal ingenuity and the mysterious answer prevented that from happening. Yes, House has been aware of the danger in Kohler for some time. He has been operating at a level of discretion and financial heft that numerous small countries would envy. But with the information coordinator returned, it has become clear that whatever his broader game is, it just must now come to an end. Only Ovi and a handful of confidence within the leadership council of the house have known of this project's very existence. Ah. Kieran leans forward, exhaling, bending at the waist until his outstretched arms are fully extended and his forehead is touching the shellacked surface of the tatami mat. A sigh leaks out of his compressed lungs. As under the guidance of a willing mind, muscles surrender their reflexive tightening. To maintain flexibility in all things is essential. Coordinator is not alone in her observations about the collective. For some time, it has been clear to many within the organization that things are deteriorating. 
the community proposition of the organization has broken down, and maintaining market share in the crime game has gradually become the prime motivator. Now, that very profitable niche has attracted the envy of competitors from within their very own client community. The collective's finest analysts have determined that absorption is the likely future if trends within the organizational structure remain unchanged. Kieran raises himself to his knees. Once there, he sinks onto his heels and returns to stillness. The shape and design of the meditation space are deliberately modeled on that Shinto tea house design, and he has assumed the posture of an adherent to the customs. His hands hang at his sides as he begins breathing and chanting a long series of tonal phrases. During this time, Kieran gives nothing of himself to contemplation of the project he has authorized. In this space, there is no room for consideration of the long-range consequences of having set out activists, advanced cells, and agents over three years in anticipation of the day they will be needed to help the organization as it matured. For the moment, Kieran manages to keep his mind clear of the chaff of all such matters. As he stirs, rising to his feet and moving silently toward the alcove where his room-temperature green tea awaits, he gives not one thought to the revolution his commands have unleashed. This is neither the time nor the place. Obi observes from behind a smoky, one-way mirror as Superior seats himself against a lichen-colored post in the room and begins sipping tea. The space is equipped with sensors that tell Kieran's breathing is very slow. Good. The executive officer needs to relax. Ovi turns away from the watch station and kicks his chair into a glide that takes him to the control panel, ranged against the opposing wall. Their game is deep. The Indu folks think they have infiltrated the West Coast new towns heavily enough to begin taking them over. They want the water, and they want to put a stop to the rapid growth of political power that is growing within. Refugees overloading services are leaning heavily on Portland Newtown's resource base. House knows that these same commercial players have themselves been penetrated. The experiment is being run in more than one dimension and on multiple planes. Hypothesis, counter-hypothesis. House agents have successfully integrated themselves into the Indu planning matrix. This Portland scheme will be the test piece. Their pressure tactics, the flood at the highest level of people and intel is flowing toward house at a very high rate and with high levels of confidence. Ovi scrolls through what must be a thousand pages of reports and integrated outcome speculation studies. He will know what he's looking for when he sees it. His intuition, after all, is what got him this job. Such a fact cannot help but provide wry amusement, since Ovi knows how generally unreliable hunches really are. The plan is on. Every one of their operatives in the field is in position to make themselves useful when the crunch comes, and if events continue to develop at the current rate, it's coming sooner than any of them think. He turns his attention to the files for coordinator, Paste them up next to those for Collie Gray and the recently augmented data set on answer. An additional set has been made to include the mysterious woman Luz. For her, there is even less data than for answer. Obi considers that one might wish for fatter folios on these last two. The more information, the better, generally. A series of psych overlays liar the profiles, performance projections based on theoretical situations. 
Other profiles, those on India figures, pushers, independent actors, some of the collective doubles and the man known as Color Glow on the gel screen. Quite a crew, Hobie thinks. It reminds him of formula whose active ingredients have been introduced into combination with one another before, a possibly dangerous experiment with many combustible components. At the base of his monitor, a light flashes. The director's vitals are jumping, a sign he has done with tea. Time to get at it. As he steps toward the office door, Ovi tries to calculate the last time he personally has availed himself of the executive's assistant's privilege to use the tea room. Can't remember how long it's been. He turns and quickly signs the use register for that afternoon. No time like the present. Tuesday, 10.42, GMT minus 8. Kali is glad to see Luz. It has been nearly 12 years since the last time they were together. As he steps from one group of workers to another, asking advice on the procedural methods that will be employed or taking the time to offer advice on a wiring problem, he cannot help turning every few minutes to reassure himself that his mentor and friend is really here in the room with him now. My importance is to be with you and answer, she told him once he had asked what she would do with her life when she grew up. It is what I told you that day long ago in Chavin de Wantar. I was born to be there when you came. My work is to show you what you could be, nothing more. But you have a life to live beyond hanging out with us, Luz, Collie protested. I mean, what do you do when we're not around? There's no way someone with your skills, your power for good and way of teaching is going to sit still and just waste away. I am occupied with my people, she nodded. And one of the members of my family or someone from my village needs something. Something magic, huh? Kali rumples. Luz shrugged. Change making, wind touching, magic. Everyone calls it something. I walk with them. Sometimes I work in their dreams. It is simple, really. I am, for my people, like a doctor, a little, maybe like a person, to show them the way now and then. It seemed like an understatement. Kali cannot quantify what it is specifically about Luz that makes her so powerful. She defies categorization, but her effect on people is undeniable, like now. She sits, eyes closed, waiting for the moment when her skills will be needed. The rope of her hair braid has grown longer over the years, he sees. Now it hangs across her shoulder and drapes down the front of her chest to pool beneath the rosette of loosely opened hands lying in her lap. This is the woman who inspired him to question what his purpose in the world should be, and, by the most gentle of means, revealed his own capabilities. Polly walks over to where his friend sits and crouches at her side. Not long now, he says. I am glad of being here today, Kali, she chirps as she tilts her head back, looking up into the broad, vaulting curve of the distant roof. In the belly of the world, she laughs. Yes, it's like that, Kali nods, looking up as well. Pilhat John walks by on his way out to the lab. Hey, Kal, you want to get on over and have a little tune-up with the doc? I'll be back in just a sec. Got to grab some suppressors we left. Mind if I tag along? Coordinator practically jumps out of her chair. Two more minutes of this sitting crap and I'm going to lose it. No sweat, Pill says without turning to the audience. He would prefer to avoid the company, but he knows impatience overload when he sees it. Best thing for everybody here is to get her out of here. Let's go. Hedda, 
checks her wristwatch. All the precursors have been administered and the subject is nearing the adjusted metabolic threshold. There are perhaps 30 people on the working floor attending to last minute details and preparing their individual workstation. This operation is so much more expansive and complex than when we started working on Dana with the base unit analyzer. She dismisses the passing shade of doubt as to the enterprise at hand with a barely perceptible nod to her own sense of moral and ethical balance. We're doing the right thing. We have asked all the questions we can. There are risks, risks we cannot have taken on account, but perhaps based on the evidence. She raises her head and straightens her shoulders. Twelve more minutes. She casts about the workspace looking for, well, she isn't exactly sure what it is she's after, but her mind reassures her that she'll know it when she sees it. On the table, the Longbones Warrior inhabits a pharmacopic coma located between the ethereal, texturally vague layers that both constitute life and distinguish the living from the dead. What is, was, and ever will be in this wan remnant of an extinguished culture lays stranded in this quiet realm of suspended animation for the attention of those bustling around it. Luz watches the ghosts of possibility circling the table. She finds her attention drawn to the feet of those moving around on the platform. Memories of her grandmother slide into her thoughts. A person's feet tell the truth of their path in life. Her grandmother offered one day between intermittent chews on a dried pear. Perhaps it was a bubble of thought, like a burp. The old lady had those. What about the foot covering sandals or shoes, Luz inquired, listening with great care. She knew that sometimes the old lady would tell a story just to exercise her capacity to paint a wonderful lie on the face of an otherwise tiresome day. Yes, the old lady raised a leathery hand to wipe away the remains of food stuck to her dry lip. It is true, foot coverings can tell much about a man or a woman, but shoes and such can offer false evidence. Suppose a butcher wants to capture the attention of a young woman with a family with money. He will not come to her wearing boots smeared with blood. He will put on a pair that he has borrowed that keep hidden away from even the touch of dust so the girl's parents cannot help but think his profession honorable because they can observe the care he takes to protect others from the dirtiness of his work. She lapsed into silence, eyes falling closed, as if she had entered a contemplative state in which she was considering what to say next. But Luz... Familiar with all the old woman's routines, knew it was a lapse of consciousness. So she reached over and pinched the ancient's cheek. The old woman's eyes flew open, and with a start she began exactly where she'd left off. Naked feet <laughs> tell only part of the truth that a person has lived, her voice rasped. Look at your foot, child. A dead man can see you have not walked far or long, worked in the fields. The small things we can think we know about a life... We can tell you the difference between people who stand for a living and those that sit by the width of the foot. The frosted blue of glaucomic eyes settled on Luz like pins. All of what I have said is true. But what is most true about watching the foot is that you can follow it to where it goes and watch what the person taking it there does. The mouth can deceive by wanting or by accident, but feet will always show the way to the truth because they follow a person to where they end, no matter where they once said they would be going. Lou stares at the smooth feet of the naked man on the table, wondering where his steps have taken him and where those steps 
would lead the rest of them. Because now we are the followers, she thinks in acceptance. She closes her eyes in preparation for what is to come. Now we are the followers. Kali likes being in the dome for this particular work. In order for the procedure to function smoothly, Hedda has ordered that much larger dehumidifiers be installed. There is no other space in Portland whose environment mimics so well that of a desert. If I could move in here and stay forever, I'd do it in a heartbeat, Kali ruminates. But he doesn't risk saying anything for fear of breaking the concentration of his associates as they move into the heart of the extraction process. The lights of the examination theater have been set to a warm, luxurious glow, low enough on the Kelvin scale to generate eye-soothing illumination without creating too much heat. The space needs to be well-lit and warm. The underground music of Ria Aul, the most famous of northern India's soundtrackers, begins to undulate from the speaker recesses. Kali feels himself momentarily transported, moved by sound to a world populated by the enormous band of digidivs whose belief all life should be accompanied by music and think they might be a simpler future than the one he's working with now. Instead, he has come to be in a place where the portent of wonder and potential for horror romance one another with the convicted vigor of dancers uncertain as to who deserves to lead. Looks around for signs that anyone else has noticed how the place has taken on the arcane sense of a stage play. The cast on the stage has been reduced to the main bits, Hedda, Pill, Recon Aviz, the anesthesiologist, Dana, Hedda's newly adopted protege, sits at the left hand of the senior scientist. Luz has taken a place at the foot of the table, crouching on an elevated chair with her hands draped like living socks over the surprisingly tiny feet of the unconscious warrior. Coordinator has attached herself to Kali, moving with him as he sidles around the event site, watching for any clue that will shape his own sense of purpose. She is keeping her native skepticism well-pocketed, waiting, Kali supposes, for events to rescue her from the rarefied atmosphere of happening. He knows how she feels. In one sense, he supposes all of them are linked by the common aspiration that everything will work out. No singular exception to their naive wishes will assert his own will and fuck the whole thing into next Christmas. The certainty of that last tiny piece almost makes him physically wince. Things will work out all right. The only question is how. Hedda chances to look at the others. Everyone seems fine. She scratches her upper lip below the nose and suppresses a sneeze. Surgical masks, goggles, full-body pantsuits make itching a real nuisance. Hedda looks around at the team and gives the go-ahead. Go for the visuals, she says, and Dana turns to light up the main view panels. Pill and Kali watch the volume of images that stream suddenly like exhaust out of the subject's head. His past life, any past life, would be difficult enough to sort through, but the challenge here is not simply to decode the casual encryption of one man's extraordinary existence. First, there is the task of identifying who the man on the table is, distinct from the plethora of experiential images this promises to be rough going. Using color filtration techniques developed in the work with Dana and matching those up with frequency modulations in amplitude, definition, and intensity of images, Kali has been able to help the team begin the refined separation schematic that will allow them to set up channels dedicated to each unique signal. So far, 
Apart from the subject's own line, it looks like at least 78 signal pathways displaying strongly individuated patterns exist. This is an important distinction since, as Hedda has pointed out, the material that constitutes the majority of signal-to-noise ratio in tracking seems to be a history text related to subject memories carried forward intact from people who have been dead for a very long time and whose total recall of collective memory acts as a wash over the backdrop of history in the mind they are charting. Tuesday, 11.37, GMT-8. It is Amati, no doubt now. Three different DNA groups matched to the hundred thousandth detail. And my own data agrees, still thinks. Only one more detail, and we're ready to begin again. He leans forward and wipes a viewport of the cloud of condensation forming on the windshield. Down the road, 500 meters off, a teenage boy is stamping his feet to ward off the chill of an unexpectedly long delay. For the last 20 minutes, he's been considering whether to stay put or walk back to his house, but adolescence intolerance has kept him where he is. Fucking bust, the boy mutters. He shaves his hands together. Been waiting all week for Friday, and now Molly will be at the cafeteria, and she'll be pissed that I'm not with her there. Shit. Not that Molly's needs are any particular concern to him, just that he needs the money she'll be giving him for the weed. And if he walks home, there's always mom talking shit about why he ain't in school. The boy pulls a cigarette out of the inner pocket of his rain jacket and flicks it alight. Five more minutes and that's it, man. Five minutes is a bitch long time in this fucking weather. Still watches. The signs of impatience are clear. So much nervous movement. Clouds of smoke smudge the heavy air trapped under the bus stop's tiny roof. Just a little longer. Rafe doesn't need a watch. He'll know when. Even though this is the so-called civilized world, a place ruled by convention and formula, hunting is no different here than it was in the jungle. You mark the game, then observe the creature's patterns until you are sure you understand their habits. Establish a blind downwind so that your presence will go unobserved during the stalk. Wait to spring until the moment when the prey is least expecting any change in routine. Rafe turns the ignition, and the truck's engine fires right up, eases out of the access lane and onto the two-lane country road. His legs are stiff. The good Samaritan wiggles his toes to restore circulation. Rescue by chance, the commerce of compassion. The rules may vary from place to place, but the game is always the same. This kind of hunt is called trapping, and the trails are absolutely jammed with prey, just there for the taking. Sick of the wet, annoyed by persistent chill, pissed at the prospect of being late and broke, the teenager is only too happy to take the stranger up on the offer of a ride into town. What the fuck? Guy looks all right. Even if his taste in music is dog shit. As the door closes, Rafe offers his passenger a benign smile. All that remains now is the cooking. Tuesday, 11.38, GMT-8. Pill is standing, hands jammed in his pockets, experiencing a moment of relative mental relaxation. A whimsical desire for a little hash plays through his head. In that instant, his euphoric memory shows him what a great time he had back in date immaterial. Oh, fuck you, he tells the thing. I, I know where I am. Boredom plays this card on him more frequently than he would like, but what the fuck? It's just an idea, right? 
He watches the pooling of the networked life up on the monitors. What would these guys make of my pathetic little life if they could see inside my head? Compared to this mess, it's read like a flat line. I'm not so sure it would be easy to distinguish my actual experiences from the ones I imagined, though, Pill considers. He remembers blastingly vivid hallucinations. Doc, I don't mean to disturb your concentration, Pill says as he emerges from the phosphors of memory, but I wanted to ask if you had any filter that was keyed to discern the difference between vivid hallucinations and genuine experience. From my own work with these substances, I can tell you, it's sometimes damn hard, even now, for me to discern the real memory of what happened from the memory provided by the drug. At his hands, one finger raises, calls for patience, tells him she is listening, but not able to respond just yet. Then it falls and she turns to face him. Very good, John. I see no matter how hard you strive to give the impression of your lethargy that your very nimble mind is hard at work. The answer to your question is yes. We are making adjustments as we move into this communal experience to compensate for the high likelihood of just such a differential. Taking into account, as you obviously have, the fact that we know this man was part of a ritualistic cult, we can assume that perception-altering passages were a normal routine, and a voice from the doorway pierces the veil of studied quiet with the unexpected sharpness of a child screaming in a church. So did you find him yet? Everyone except Luz turns to see who the rule breaker is. She has been expecting him. Good to see you, brother man, Absurd quips as he approaches Collie's position near the control board from the head of the stair. Nice beard. Looks like you've been saving time for more productive things than shaving. I see you started without me. Coordinator, he says, offering a stiff nod in her direction. Luz, Collie calls the shaman in a carefully controlled voice, hoping to maintain the flow of decorum which has shown itself to be the most productive for conducting this business. I welcome my friend, she says simply, but she doesn't bother to look toward answer. She is concentrated on the forces moving through the pads of elaborated sensation that she holds in her hands. Coordinator watchers answers approach. His movements are so slight. His legs take him from one position to the next, but he seems not to be walking exactly. And as he glides toward the working group, his arms hang at his sides as if they were not subject to the swaying that balance alone usually imparts to limbs attached to a moving body. A mysterious fascination with the seemingly effortlessness of locomotion the man displays occupies one element of her mind as she watches. The other part is pitching between feelings of harsh judgment and wonder at his extraordinary gall showing up. Answer decides, based on the evidence at hand, that it would be best to shut up now. He walks up to Collie and stands in front of him, appraising his health. Looking at the shine of yellow light emanating from him, he is pleased to see Collie has not slacked on his Tai Chi. This is evident in the relaxed power the man wears like silk shirts. Answer throws his arms around the slightly taller man's shoulders and pulls him near as he hugs Collie close. Answer whispers, Good to see you, Mano. Good to see you. And he means every word. Collie, intent to remain distant, unyielding, but he finds himself unable to remain completely frozen. Over Answer's shoulder, Kali can see Luz watching them out of the side of her eye. He feels a smile crawling out of hiding onto the blank space of his face. The absurdity of it makes him laugh. <laughs> Igual modo, Ani, he says. Igual modo. He steps back from the embrace to give himself room to really see his friend. In truth, time and conditions seem to have treated him very well. 
There's a scar on Answer's forehead that retains the blush of recent acquisition, and his hair is slightly longer than customary, but his intensity is certainly undiminished. He can feel that from arm's length and the curious lightness of body. The sense Answer has always projected that if he wanted, he could simply lift off and fly. That compelling aura of magical possibility is completely intact. Hedda stops what she was doing and turns toward the newcomer. Here is a truly eccentric source of influence. She makes this judgment not with sentiment or emotion, but instead from the fact that the instant he has made his way into the working stage of all her instruments have begun skewing wildly. It's as if the mere presence of this new arrival has somehow excited the drug-suppressed awareness of her subject. There is no other way to explain the sudden statistical gyrations of the measuring equipment. If it were just one machine, maybe, but not the entire apparatus, she steps away from her crew. Carry on, she says. I'll be back in a moment. She walks to where the newcomer is standing with Kali Gray and extends the hands of welcome. Hello, I'm Hedda Jorn-Lee. You must be Mr. Gray's friend. Answer, he announces himself plainly. My pleasure. If I may ask, the senior scientist feels bound to inquire, are you armed? I mean to say, do you have any electronic weaponry or... The amused look that appears on Answer's face stops her. This line of questioning is over. I see, she says. Nothing like that, eh? Would you mind terribly coming with me? Answer follows her lead without offering a response that two of them step across a minefield of looping cables and banded bundles of connecting wires and onto an insulated tile that makes up the temporary lab floor. Answer notices there are four clocks on one of the data display cabinets. The body of the long bone, naked apart from strips holding them in place, seems of little interest to him. Navigating your way through this, he asks. Yes, Dr. Shonley nods without consulting the newcomer's face. You know where you are by the time it is. Interesting that you should notice that particularly. We're mining the specimen's recall and ancillary retention regions. Each of them contains a vast number of possible identity-captured memories. We log each of them mechanically against the clocks as part of the means of tracking their position relative to one another, as well as to our fixed base of the subject. Like dead reckoning, Answer's head moves ever so slightly in ascent. An astute observation, Hedda congratulates, something very like that. Would you mind standing here for a moment? I would like to see what effect your more direct presence has on our instruments. Answer moves forward a couple of steps and stops where she's indicated he would, she would like him to stand. From this vantage, he is able to look down the long axis of the slightly icy-looking body of the comatose man, directly at Luz. Here I am, he speaks wordlessly toward her. She does not move, nor raise her head in recognition. This is a private conversation. There is no need to let others become aware of its taking place. It is good you have decided to come, she answers. I don't like this. But the cat said I should make up my mind for myself. Now you will do what no one else can, she tells him. That doesn't look like much from here, he says. You have to look further. Use what you know how to use. Now is the time. Answer hesitates, a quarrel between his curiosity, his sense of duty, and an abiding scour of disinterest beginning to seep into his awareness. Stop it. Luz scolds, looking at him directly for a moment. You do what you are meant to do, or go now and leave these others to their work. There is nothing venomous in her feel, nothing at all accusatory or denigrating. It is merely the tired response of an older sister who had grown weary of her more capable younger sibling's various abdications. A quiet descends on answer. 
He knows this place, has experienced this before. From this viewpoint, it is as though he could circumnavigate his own body as it stands momentarily suspended in time before him. The nature of the objective is clear. He notes the movements of the people gathered here, noticing the unremarkable nature of ordinary objects, chairs, coffee cups, shoes. Without considering the action, Answer takes two steps, extends his left hand, and places his palm over the mouth of the naked man lying before him. Stepping around to the side of the subject's head, Answer looks at the face. It is like reading text. The probing inquiry that the others are working on will produce an outcome, he can see that, but when? He understands the methods being used, sees that there are already some reason to believe the outcome of this mechanical inquisition will be useful, but the thing he can do is suddenly very clear. Hedda has only taken a few steps when she realizes that answer is no longer with her. She turns to see what has delayed him just in time to watch with near antiseptic detachment as the new man lays his hands on the subject's face, covering with cyanotic lips with an open hand. What? Behind her, rising like steam clouds from the mouths of cold children, sighs of exclamation escape from the other lab techs. She cannot see two ways at once and turns toward the technicians, hoping to understand what has prompted this reaction. The anesthesiologist has been paying strict attention to the charts. This is the most heavily sedated patient he's ever worked with, and any little change could spell the end for the subject. His focus is painted on the screens, and he is in a state of constant motion, adjusting gas feeds, stimulants, tranquilizing agents, and opiates in a mix so ethereal he knows he could never reproduce it if the variance levels were not being automatically recorded. But now, it is as if he has no control over any of it. Dosimeters, reporting monitors, his whole board of equipment jumps into action and begins dictating its own course. For a fractional instant, Rickon, a man known for his skill and control, is paralyzed between an instinctive need to react and a certain penetrating conviction that total abdication is required. This conviction is an odd sensation, something like the feeling that you are being watched to source is pure mystery, but you simply know it's true. Everyone in the lab can see the dials and reporting tapes of all their monitoring equipment jerk into sort of hyperactive overdrive, swinging from one point to another, images swarming rather than swimming across the recording monitors. It is as if an accelerant had suddenly entered the electronics and stimulated them to produce results at an insanely high, frenzied rate of speed. All eyes fall on Hedda. Even Kali and Coordinator are watching her. From deep within the creative source of her brilliance as a scientist, the aging Nobel laureate senses what is happening. She raises her hand, forestalling any reaction by the team of befuddled technicians. From where she stands, she can plainly see that every monitoring station is functioning. It simply appears that all of the reporting sensors are engaged in a frantic effort to keep pace with an input load that has jumped by quantum measures over what she'd planned. The subject's mind is racing, a fixed element of her intellect, that aspect, bound, anchored, and bordered by fact and proof, tells her that what is happening is impossible. There is no way this deeply sedated man could possibly be reacting to these levels of any stimulus. His connection with this world is, for all practical purposes, non-existent. Some other unplanned thing is this transpiring that affects the profoundly subdued input sensors of this subject. And the only thing that has changed in the last 15 minutes is the arrival of the man answer. Somehow, 
The man on her examining table is reacting violently to the presence of the newcomer. She overrules the objections of her intellect. As long as data is being streamed, it is unimportant that stimulus is being employed to produce it. She flags her cohorts back to their seats and says in a low voice, let the machines work without adjusting them. She turns to Recon. Recon, that holds for you as well. I don't know exactly what is happening, but I think we just let the situation manage itself at this juncture. Luz drops her hands away from contact with the Longbone's feet. No room for three and no need either. She opens her eyes and sees answers swinging into position beside the subject's head with an odd expression of playful curiosity coming over his features. She gets out of the chair and slips away from the table. Three meters or so away, she backs out of the halo of energy that has claimed the space surrounding it like a bowl dropped over a spider, the curve of crackling orange-hued power surges overhead, wrinkling the atmosphere like crepe paper in the hands of a nervous grade schooler. It is good, she thinks. Good to see him useful. Deep within, Luz, the anxiety she has kept in check dissipates like steam in a warm morning air as Answer leans into this preternatural contact with the ancient enemy. Outcomes are always uncertain, she knows. But at a minimum, the struggle has been engaged. At least now, there is a contest. And that is what the women of her clan have lived to ensure for 3,000 years. She sinks to the floor, crosses her legs, and waits to see what results from this contact. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for Chapter 23 of Criminal Magic. If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a rating and review to help others find us as well.